Imagine that someone sat down and wrote out the story of your life in 12 chapters. What would they include in that story? Now, I, I know in my story, uh, there would be some highs, there would be some lows. I mean, I can't, you can't really talk about me, I feel like, uh, without talking about how handsome I am. And, uh, no, that, uh, or about uh, my depression and anxiety. Uh, those things that I've carried around all my life. You'd have to talk about my family. Uh, I'm sure there would be a chapter on my, how my clothes match or something like that. Um, and, of course, like my years in ministry and all those things, you know, kind of like the highlights of my life. And, and then there are some things that uh, whoever the author is that I hope they would leave out. You might have some of those things as well. I mean, probably that one incident from high school or college doesn't need to be in there. I mean, they didn't call the cops to arrest you, so it's not really that big of a deal anyway. You can just let that one slide. So what would my story, what would the book about my life be called? Uh, so I have some suggestions here. You can give me more suggestions later. Uh, the first one is the book of Bryce. Kind of simple, to the point. Uh, number two, the Mini Misadventures of Landon Bryce Smith. Yeah. Uh, number three, The Heavy Life of LBS. See what I did there? See that? Yeah. Uh, next one, uh, The Tale of Nisha's Husband. That's also a very, it's also a valid title. Um, and last but not least, Bryce Rhymes with Nice, The Story of an Expressionless Man with a Big Heart. So see, there's lots of options. There's lots of different directions and ways that we can go with this. We've been studying the story of Joseph for the last 10 weeks, and I don't know how it's been for you, but for me, I have seen and considered things about his life that I hadn't really thought about before. Uh, if you grew up going to church, you first learned about Joseph as a child, so it's a story that Again, most of us are really familiar with. We've heard it over and over again for a long time. But this is the first time that I've preached a series on the life of Joseph. And as I was writing these sermons, I was surprised about how little I actually knew or had noticed about him and his story. And while I knew the story was an important one, I, I, I realized as I was digging into it that my history with the Joseph story is that I've mostly skimmed it. You know what I mean? Uh, and this happens a lot with Bible stories that we know uh, because we know the beginning, middle, and end. When we go back to it and read it, we don't pay a lot of attention to all the little details that are in there uh, and, and all the stuff that's kind of between the lines. So I knew what happened, but I didn't really understand the story uh, fully. So starting out, I gave this series the title, uh, The Mark and the Marksman, The Story of Joseph. And I chose that title because I wanted to talk about how Joseph was the one who was chosen by God uh, to, to carry the promises and to do God's work, and how that made him a target for those around him. And I thought, mostly, that that was a story I was going to tell in, say, roughly five weeks. So here we are at ten weeks, and I told a different story than that. I mean, certainly it was part of the story, but it wasn't the whole thing. 
So I think that I might need to rename this series here on the last day. <laughs> I mean, I didn't want to remake a graphic, people. Come on, that takes like 15 minutes, and I just don't have that kind of time. But before we get to renaming the story, let's look at how the story ends. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, you can open up to uh, Genesis chapter 48. It's where we're going to start today. Uh, and we are wrapping up. The, the, the Joseph story goes uh, into chapter 50, the last chapter of the book of Genesis. But what we have here at the end in 48, 49, and 50 is um, there's a lot of, of, of different kind of procedural things going on in the family. So we're not going to cover this as deeply as we have covered some. But the first thing that happens is Joseph and his sons, they go before Jacob, and Jacob bless them. Now, some things we need to remember. Um, for all intents and purposes, Joseph is Egyptian. Uh, he has lived there all of his adult life. He, he looks like an Egyptian. He took a, an Egyptian bride. He speaks Egyptian. He dresses like an Egyptian. He even walks like an Egyptian. I waited the whole time, 10 weeks it took to get to that joke. It was with good reason that Joseph's brothers didn't recognize him when they saw him. So consequently, uh, when Jacob comes, he, you know, he meets, uh, sees Joseph again. He's reunited with him, but he's never met Joseph's wife or his children. So Joseph wanted to bring his children before Jacob. So we're, here's where we're going to pick it up in verse 8. When Israel saw the sons of Joseph, he asked, who are these? They are the sons God has given me here, and Joseph said to his father. Then Israel said, Bring them to me so I may bless them. Now Israel's eyes were failing because of old age, and he could hardly see. So Joseph brought his sons close to him, and his father kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again, and now God has allowed me to see your children too. Then Joseph removed them from Israel's knees and bowed down with his face to the ground. And Joseph took both of them, Ephraim on his right toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh on his left towards Israel's right hand, and brought them close to him. But Israel reached out his right hand and put it on Ephraim's head, though he was a younger. And crossing his arms, he put his left hand on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. Then he blessed Joseph and said, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked faithfully the God who had been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. May they, be call, may they be called by my name and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and may they increase greatly on the earth. All right. Now, the passing of the blessing was a really big deal culturally. The father would uh, pass down uh, the family blessing, as it were, in this case, uh, the relationship with God and the promises that God had made. Uh, he would pass down property, wealth, and um, standing, the standing of his sons uh, for the future. And remember that Jacob himself had this moment with Isaac where he received the blessing that was meant for Esau. And it's a very important moment spiritually. Because with these words, these words that, that Jacob spoke to Joseph, 
he, he drew Joseph back into the covenant and the promises of God. Now, yeah, I, I know that while Joseph was in Egypt, he was doing the Lord's work. I haven't forgotten that. But remember, for his entire adult life, he has been Egyptian. And there was no protocol or temple or way to worship God there at that time. So even though he knew the promises of God, and even though he had a relationship with God, he had been separate from the covenant and the promise for a really long time. So this is more than just a symbolic moment. It's, it's Jacob extending all that God had given to him to his son, Joseph. Jacob was still the carrier of God's covenant. He lived in the promised land, he worshiped God, and God still spoke with him. And his faith was an ancestral faith. It was passed down to him from uh, his father and his grandfather. And it needed to be passed down to his children, especially to these who had been gone for so long or he had not even met. Therefore, this is an important moment in the life of Joseph and his family. The blessing extended to them and passed on by the bearer of the blessing. But of course, Jacob can't do anything the normal way. So he blesses the younger son with the greater blessing and the older son with the lesser blessing. Even though he says the same words over them, he uses the greater hand on the younger son and the lesser hand on the older son. Now, Joseph gets kind of like, Dad, what are you doing? You know, this is the older son. And, and, and Jacob more or less says, look, I know what I'm doing. Just let me do it this way. This is how it's going to work out. Uh, his sons, by the way, probably had no idea what was going on. Right? I mean, they, they had never probably seen or experienced something like this but it's important this moment because joseph had given his family all that he could to bless them but this promise this blessing was much more significant in the story itself and joseph and his children were drawn back in but wait there is more blessing let's look at chapter 49 in chapter 49, Jacob blesses all of the brothers, and he goes through one by one. Uh, each of the brothers received uh, the blessing that, J that Jacob believed was appropriate for them. So this is less of like a covenant blessing of bringing like he did with Joseph and his sons, and this is more like, this is who you have been, and this is my reward for you. Uh, Joseph, of course, received the longest blessing because, I mean, He's Joseph. Uh, but Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Issachar did not really receive blessings at all. So let's look at verses 3 through 7 and 14 through 15. Now, most of the blessings are things like you will prosper, you will defeat your enemies. Um, but these are interesting. So first to Reuben. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor excelling in power turbulent as the waters you will no longer excel for you went up onto your father's bed onto my couch and defiled it what did he do i don't know but it was very defily whatever it was that he did simeon and levi are brothers their swords are weapons of violence 
Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly. For they have killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Enemies of oxen they are. Cursed be their anger so fierce and their fury so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. And this one's my favorite. Issachar is a raw-boned donkey lying down among the sheep pens. When he sees how good is his resting place and how pleasant is his land, he will bend his shoulder to the burden and submit to forced labor. Okay, let's imagine, if you will, that it's one of the last times you have with your father, and he puts his hand on your forehead and he says, Richie, you are a raw-boned donkey. (laughs) I mean, how do we handle these things? So again, Reuben had done something bad. We don't know what it was. Simeon and Levi are given this negative blessing, this lack of blessing, whatever we want to call it. Uh, I wouldn't call it a curse per se. I mean, that feels a little bit strong, but it's definitely, it's definitely not good. Simeon and Levi were given these negative reviews because they were violent men. It was clear that Jacob didn't really want them carrying his name out into their violence. And oxen everywhere we're we're afraid of these guys and and i think issachar definitely wins for the best book title right the legend of issachar the raw bone donkey um and his sin more or less is being lazy he doesn't have enough pride to stand up and keep what is his now all of these blessings are the last thing that joseph or that jacob says these these are his last moments with his family because after he blessed his sons, he told them one more time where to bury him, to go back and bury him with his, his father and his grandfather. And then the Bible says he pulled his feet up into the bed and died. Um, yeah, it's, I don't know if that's you know, some sort of like uh, a saying or statement that they had at the time, but he passes away. And Joseph was beside himself with grief. Um, and he ordered that the physician, the Egyptian physicians, come in, and he wanted to embalm uh, Jacob's body. So they embalmed him, which took 40 days, and it says that the Egyptians mourned Jacob for 70 days. And at the end of those 70 days, Jacob, or Joseph, I'm going to keep mixing these names up, I'm sorry. Joseph approached Pharaoh and said, I promised my dad that I would bury him uh, back in the land of his father. So I'm going to take him back. And, and, and Pharaoh says, yes, go uh, with my blessing. And it was quite the procession. I, I, I have a hard time imagining what this would have looked like in, in the sparsely populated land of Canaan at the time to see all of these people come back to bury Jacob. And here's what the, what the account says. So Joseph went up to bury his father. All Pharaoh's officials accompanied him the dignitaries of his court, and all the dignitaries of Egypt, besides all the members of Joseph's household and his brothers and those belonging to his father's household. Only their children and their flocks and herds were left in Goshen. Chariots and horsemen also went up with him. It was a very large company. So, but it's also an impressive company. Uh, having the, the chariots and the horses and all these dignitaries and all these different people going to this land to to bury this man who is more or less a wanderer. Um, And now that that Jacob is gone, the brothers get together, 
and they say, uh, Dad's dead. Everyone's like, yeah, we know. Uh, what if Joseph changes his mind? Which is a valid question. Now that Dad isn't here to keep us in his good graces, what's going to happen? So look at chapter 50, verses 15 through 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? <laughs> so they sent word to Joseph. They sent like a letter of some kind. Um, they sent word to Joseph saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. We're coming to the end of the story on this family, and it's kind of nice to be reminded that they haven't changed all that much. <laughs> they don't approach Joseph personally. They send this letter. And who is the letter from? It's from them. But they make it sound like the statement is from whom? From Jacob. They don't want uh, Joseph to turn on them, and so their thought is, well, since Dad isn't here, let's just say that Dad said this, and maybe that will convince Joseph that, you know, we're okay, and that we didn't really mean it when we tried to kill him. You know, it's just that, that kind of stuff. So they, they were afraid, and they sent this letter to Joseph, and Joseph does what he's done a lot in these closing chapters. He weeps over it. Why does Joseph weep? We don't really know, right? But he's overcome with sorrow, and there are potential reasons why. Things like, you know, maybe in that moment he understood that his brothers uh, were afraid of him or that there were still things between them that needed to be taken care of. But he assured them that they were okay and that all that had happened was due to the workings of God. And then finally, the last part of Genesis chapter 50, verses 23 through 20, 22 through 26. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children, also the children of Maker, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of the land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110. And after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Now, Joseph does some important things here at the end that we don't just want to gloss over. Number one, he acts as now the promised carrier of God. 
Uh, and so he speaks of the things that are to happen or to come in a way that he hasn't really spoken about them before. He always saw his work and his mission as working to save the world from famine. But this is the first time that he himself ties, ties himself to the covenant and the promises of God. And he affirmed the promises of God, and he encouraged his people to rely on God and what God had promised. And then he asked one more last thing. He's not going to be buried in Canaan yet. But he wants, when God takes the people back to Canaan, he wants them to take his bones and take him to be buried back in the land of his father. So it's a pretty good ending to the story especially on the part of Joseph. And to be straight with you, like I needed to hear him say these words. I, I wanted to hear him say that he understood what God's promises were and how he was a part of those promises. But the thing is that these last chapters and these last words of Joseph remind me, again, that I had the story, the title of this story, wrong. That I need something different. When we read biblical stories like this one, we understandably get caught up in the characters themselves. Thus, we have the stories of Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, David, on and on and on. And when we read these stories, we tend to focus on the hero's faithfulness, the way they stick with God through the most difficult of times. And we want to be faithful like them. We want to model ourselves after the most faithful moments. And to be clear, there's nothing wrong with this, with wanting to be faithful like those who came before us are faithful. But on closer inspection, when we dig into these characters, we see that they are, in fact, not as faithful as we build them up to be in our minds. I mean, I don't know if you have done this in the same way that I have, but I focus so much on their faithfulness that when they show moments of faithlessness, I tend to gloss over those things. Uh, I, I don't know that I skip them entirely, but to me, those things are not always a story. Maybe with the exception of David, because his failure is so spectacular. And... We see, interestingly enough, that these faithful people are often very faithful in times of enormous difficulty and are not faithful over some of the smallest things. It's a weird kind of juxtaposition we see in them, that they can go up against armies but then be faithful, faithless over the smallest of things. And we see that every story takes a turn where the story becomes less about that person being faithful to God and that person becomes the story about them being faithful to themselves, working in their own interests for what they want or what they need. Which makes me think that I'm reading these stories incorrectly. If I want a model of faithfulness, then I shouldn't be focusing on them. I should be focusing on God. Because it is God who is faithful in all of these stories without fail. You know, it was God who approached Abraham and made a promise to him that Abraham didn't even ask for. 
It was God who works for the good of those he loves, even when those people are far from perfect. It is God who moved throughout the Joseph story. It was not Joseph, and it was not nations or empires. It was God himself who started all of the business that was going on in the story of Joseph. He is the one moving and working and shaping and forming because God is the engine that makes this car run. He is the one that makes this happen. And so it occurs to me that though I might call them such, these are not the stories of Abraham, Jacob, or Joseph. Instead, it's the story of how God called Abraham and gave him great promises that Abraham didn't deserve. It is the story of how God blessed Jacob and drew him into those same promises through much difficulty in trial. And it is the story of how God remained faithful to the promises he made and took care of his people through the outrageous circumstances of Joseph's life. All these people you see are children of the faithful God who never wavers, who never turns his back on his people the God who is always there. And while we might respect these people, and we should, we should respect them, we need to remember who it is that made them great. And it wasn't them. It was God. So considering this, I think I need a new title to my story. My story. Because like all of these people from the Bible, I am imperfect, careless, forgetful, short-sighted, and on and on and on I can go. But like them, like you, I'm a child of a promise. a child of the most faithful God. And my life story will not be about what I've done, but rather it will be how much God has done for me and how God took someone who was imperfect and who failed in so many ways and made him into something else. And I'm pretty happy with that story, right? As we take communion together here this morning, we are celebrating that. We are celebrating that the promises we have from God through Jesus are given to us, and, and, and it's already done. That Jesus has already come, that he has already died, that he's already been resurrected, and we already have victory through him. We already have victory through him.